0: The UK generates over 100 million tonnes of garbage every year, with every single tonne carrying the similar weight of a small car. One of the founding B Corps' Elvis & Cressy is a social enterprise that rescues waste, transforms it into luxury lifestyle accessories and donates a significant proportion of its profits to charity. In a chance encounter with the London Fire Brigade, Cressy Wesling and her husband James Henry, aka Elvis, learned that London's damaged, decommissioned hoses were headed to landfill. They set up their company, Elvis and Cressy, in 2005 to save it. And incredibly, for over a decade now, none of London's fire hose has gone to landfill. In 2017, the company partnered with Burberry to tackle their leather waste. They also reclaim parachute silk, auction banners, and printing blankets, to name a few of the other materials. Cressy herself has an MBE, a background in venture capital, and significant startup experience. I first watched Cressy speak at the B Corp Summit in 2018. It was at this talk that she said something which stopped me in my tracks and made me want to invite her to this podcast today. She said. We need to strip designers of their title of creativity or the idea that they might be creative if the pace and processes of what they are doing are effectively destroying the planet and exploiting people. I'm Carla Morales-Lee. For our second Warrior Women interview, I hope to delve deeper into the thinking of the environmentalist behind the brand, a woman who is using her creativity to tackle the waste crisis. Welcome, Cressy. Hi. Is it true that you've loved waste from childhood? It's not a common thing that you hear. And I'm kind of super interested to hear how that love was formed.
1: Well, I think actually a lot of kids probably love waste, really. You know, they make mud pies on our street. And we used to, you know, take old dead flowers from the house, crush them up, pour water through them, and make what we thought was this absolutely brilliant smelling perfume. But uh, yeah, I think when I first think about waste I think about going to the dump with my dad and there there were seagulls there and I grew up in the prairies and that was the only place where you ever saw seagulls so it was quite an amazing place and I remember thinking gosh there's so much here that doesn't need to be here that just needs a bit of reinvention and just needs a bit of love and I've thought that ever since, really.
0: You know, as you're saying that, I'm actually taken aback to memories of myself going to the dump and seeing um, tennis rackets and chairs and actually finding that quite thrilling. So it's almost funny what you forget. And I definitely remember making art out of recycling cans um, at school. So was design something that was in your family?
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, my sister's an artist, her husband's an artist, but I didn't live in the same house when she was really developing her practice. So it's not something that I was necessarily influenced by I'm just trying to think through the family no I mean my grandparents were farmers and teachers my parents were teachers and business people even I would say that I struggle to consider us to be designers Elvis more so than myself I find it one of these elevated uh, job titles that it's really difficult to claim for yourself and when other people call me a designer, it's okay, but I, I find that I would, would never really describe myself
0: that way. I definitely appreciate that because my background was working in product design innovation. Mm. And one of the things that really drew me to your work was the fact that you talk about how design was just the logical thing to do with the fire hose. So mm. I understand that you're not coming from a place of um, being you know, born into that or feeling that you're a designer first. Clearly you're an environmentalist first. Mm. And um, on that, you know, you're you're known as highly successful and you're described as an environmental entrepreneur in many magazines and publications. Given that there are actually many women in our community, the Warrior Women community, with similar kind of titles, I've heard lots of stories about the highs and lows of that journey to success. And I, I love that one of the things that's coming out in the narrative at the moment around entrepreneurialism is you Know a 10 year success when people are, are pitched as an, an overnight success and it takes a lot longer. Mm. Talk to me about the early days like, how did you get off the ground? You know, kind of from that scrap of piece of paper, like there might be something here, through to you know, did you go and get investment? I know you've got a background investment in investment, so I'm just interested in that kind of first year. Take me to that space.
1: Well, definitely, there was no scraps of, of paper, we didn't write anything down, and there certainly wasn't any investment. You know, I think actually having had a background in venture capital has always made me rather fearful of it. I know how, how the industry works. I know what it looks for. I know how opportunistic it is. You know, I understand why people call it vulture capital some of the time. Um, and I think, what was it? There's an amazing uh, social entrepreneur, Karen Darby in the UK, who said to me once that if you take on debt, you, you can pay it off. If you take on an investor, You have an investor for life and i remember thinking that yeah actually you have to be very very sure of any investor that you took on so i was terrified of it then and to a certain extent you know still a bit terrified of of the idea now elvis elvis and i have only ever been financed by our own cash flow but if you go back to that first year you know it was very experimental we discovered the hose was going to landfill i was really annoyed by that because it's not just that it was a beautiful material. It's also that it had this incredible history and durability. And if you think about why fire hose is decommissioned, it's, it, it's because it either reaches the end of its health and safety life at 25 years, or it's because it gets a, a puncture that they can't repair, let's say at metre 11 of a 22 metre hose. But the rest of the material is perfectly capable of another very long life. And even the hose that's 25 years old, lots of it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Of course, you can't use it as hose anymore because it's, it's, it doesn't have the capacity to save lives, but we don't need bags to save lives. You know? <laughs> so I knew that the textile had potential and, and I knew that it had this beautiful history to it that would resonate not just obviously with me, but, but with lots of people. And I wanted to celebrate every single molecule of it i wanted to make sure that people had a chance to love it like i did and we certainly didn't even start with the idea of luxury what we started with was what is the best possible next use for this material and that led us to do a lot of research i spent a lot of time at the british library they have a business and ip center there we went up to yorkshire where fire hoses made we watched it how it was made you know what constituent components go into it what makes it so strong why it why it has such great structural integrity you know we became experts in fire hose and not just I suppose fire hose but decommissioned hoses in particular we we discovered it was made from nitrile rubber sandwiching a nylon woven core so we looked into every product in the world that is made with something similar and then ruled things in or out based on what we thought the potential of the hose would be. So it was very structured a, a, approach in in terms of product development and mm-hmm. industry choice. You know, there was a lot of research. But the 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 to- choice about what to start with really was a matter of practicality. You know, we didn't know how to make anything. We didn't know how to design products. Belts are long and straight, fire hose is long and straight. Elvis was making The first ever belt and he was making that because he had a belt that died the leather last of it died but the buckle was fine and he thought oh i'll use some of crazy cressy's um fire hose to to replace it and at that point you know we just literally started getting calls of people who wanted to buy these belts and it really really took off you know for the first year we only sold belts but the belt sales were enough to finance us producing a first production run The first production run resulted in us being able to produce more um and it very it's a very organic story you know we started Mm -hmm. by making belts in our bedroom uh we had a sewing machine on one side of our bed and a rivet press on the other this is in a house share and then we rented a small garage and then a larger garage and then our first workshop and then a larger workshop you know until in 2013 we bought the building that we're in now and we're moving to an even bigger site so Yeah, it's very organic.
0: I love what you were saying about venture capital. It's something that a lot of the women in the community, we're just over 100 now, and we've got some that have raised and we've got some that haven't and some that are looking at completely alternative ways of funding businesses. There's one thing that I read a while back, which really stuck with me, which was a lot of the things that startups do kind of get in the way of, of the number one thing, which is just going and finding a customer. So, you know, you spend loads of money on branding and um, and finding the office space and yeah. that that kind of just taking the next step and some kind of just magic in that as well. I mean, loads of innovations are just famed for being almost near accidents, really, like you're talking about the belt. Yeah. Um I wanted to ask you about kind of the top three moments that you've been most proud of. And linking to that point about the belt, in one of your interviews, I heard your kind of Vogue story, which I'll just quickly, you know, might be one of your top moments, but around <laughs> how, which I just love and really speaks to your story. And uh, maybe you can share that about how they'd asked you for the belt and how you kind of didn't want to send it uh, and then kind of tell us more about some of those those key moments that I suppose have, you know, framed your story.
1: Yeah, I see. so I think, you you know, you have to sort of bear in mind that I'd never purchased a Vogue magazine. I'd never read a Vogue magazine. <laughs> I, I knew that it was culturally significant, particularly, you know, maybe you could argue that the significance has gone down, um, you know, since 2010, because of the rise of digital. But it's a, it is like the, the fashion Bible. And first, I thought when they asked for a belt that it was a joke, and <laughs> and then I thought well we don't do free stuff because we, we we don't give away anything and I just thought you know it's it's 45 pounds they can buy it if they if they want it and then I had lots of debates with a couple of my friends and they're like oh my goodness please just send them a belt and we did send the belt and then nothing happened and I thought oh we've been scammed this is just, just classic uh big but but I didn't also know that there was this huge lead time in these magazines and then. And then if you're in one of their things, one of the things that lots of really lovely magazines do is they send you a copy of the magazine that you're in. So we didn't get any announcement. It w- we didn't get any email. We just were sent a copy of US Vogue and it was their first ever green issue. It was 2009. It was Cameron Diaz in a Mario Testino shoot. And it was the center image that like the, the sort of big double spread center
0: Amazing.
1: And and it was wild because most of the image is you know white furniture she's wearing a white dress lots of things are white and then there's this very obvious red belt which to me was just the center central component of the whole image um you know I'm sure you know I'm sure whoever made the dress I think it's Philip Lynn probably thought the dress was the most uh, important element but but it it was amazing because it it changed things that I didn't think could be changed by a photograph in a magazine you know suddenly we had people asking us to design for them we had shops that were interested in stocking our products we went from being you know mostly talked about in the business press because people were fascinated with the idea that we were giving half of our profits to charity to being talked about finally in you know, in the fashion press, and and that's when I say finally like that. It's it's because it's really helpful to be talked about in the fashion press when you're trying to sell goods in that industry, <laughs> where you're you know it doesn't really matter if the FT features you on its business pages. That doesn't really drive sales. So it was transformative because it really changed people's perception of us from being quirky environmentalists to you know being I suppose bona fide designers, and it was hysterical and great and you know we obviously still have six copies of that magazine (laughs) around um because it did change a lot of things for us and it did give us the idea that a lot more of what we were dreaming of doing was inherently possible
0: I mean I did listen to that story and still think I mean it was just 45 pounds why couldn't they pay it so I totally understand why you were stuck Mm. on that but um great great story and any other moments that you would say you're kind of most proud of or that you see as real turning points in in the history of Elvis and Cressy
1: yeah i think there's sort of there's two we we had someone come and ask us this question Elvis and i uh, back to back so we did we did interviews back to back and i gave my interview and then he gave his interview but he didn't hear me giving my interview so i so this was quite fascinating to see what our business looks like from his perspective. And, and you know, when they said, what's your your best moment? I just said, you know, we set out with this insanely crazy goal of being able to rescue all of London's fire hoses. Like, that was the only thing I had on my mind. And by 2010, we had done it. So when, when we got to 2010, you know, the business was of a size that every year we could rescue all of London's hoses totally sustainably. And it was total euphoria because I thought, well, you know, this is that we we almost never thought we would do this and now we're doing it and it means we can do so much more so that to me was a big high but then hearing Elvis answer the same question you know in a completely different way this you know what's your big high what's your proudest moment and he said well when we first came to the mill it was the time that we needed more help in the business and we brought a senior craftsmen that we had been working with for years in into the business so that we could develop our own crafts team and at the same time we hired our first ever apprentice and we you know we saw a young person come to us with no confidence uh no self-belief really limited uh, ability just due to shyness to communicate effectively and you know we've seen not just our first apprentice, but apprentice after apprentice after apprentice, be completely and utterly transformed by working here. And that has nothing to do with our environmental mission. What it has to do with is that this is a truly creative space where people are treated well and people's opinions and views are respected. And, you know, we wouldn't ever tolerate things like, you know, bullying or bad behavior you know, when we set up to rescue the fire hose, I didn't know that we could do all of these other things too. And Mm. listening to him answer that question made me think, actually, it has to be about more than just waste. It has to be about how we redefine capitalism, how we challenge the luxury industry at its very core, how we dissent when dissent, you know, needs to be, definitely needs to be taken, how we stand up for, the things that we believe in and how we do that all not necessarily in a campaigning kind of a way but just through the activities of the business so that when people say oh it's impossible to you know pay apprentices a living wage you just say no it's not we do it Mm. you don't have to campaign for it you just say you just say we're doing it we've been doing it for years you have no excuses.
0: <laughs> and I think that's so obvious in some ways to an outsider from all of your work that you're moving into action on stuff and then you're turning around and saying, well, actually, you know, we're proving that that it can be done. And when you made that point about the apprentice actually the original quote that I opened up with where you said that in order to be, you know, creative, you have to be not destroying the planet. You'd also said not exploiting people. Mm. So, it's interesting that you've come to that maybe just kind of post-rationalizing it. But I think if you're building a purpose-driven business to the extent that you are, so not around the edges, not greenwashing, you know, really doing it from the core, then it just stands to reason that you would also value human life um, Mm. as part of that. And anything anything else you want to share as a high? Yeah, I mean,
1: being able to tackle more and more waste streams is is an incredible high every time we get a new waste sent to us and we and we can come up with a new system like in 2012 we started focusing on leather waste and really we're we're just rocking and rolling with that idea now um, we're also working on a a a forge project with Queen Mary University we've got so many things to be excited about and actually the pandemic has been wonderful for our R&D because Normally, I'm traveling a lot. And actually, I have not left Kent, I think, bar once since this started. So every weekend, Elvis and I go on these ridiculously long walks, and we map out the kinds of things we've always dreamed of doing. And and those all then result in active R&D projects. So I think I'm going to get more and more excited about what we can do as time goes on, because it proves that, you know, there's always this talk about Um, you know, scale, you know, is is terrible and growth is terrible, you know, for for the environment. But actually, if you're scaling something that's wonderful and positive, it can be really, really good. Mm. So yeah, I think, I think I don't know if I'll be able to control myself, let's say by the time I'm 50 or 60. Because I'll have there'll be too much joy. There'll Mm. be Yeah, there'll be too much uh, wonder and excitement.
0: But I mean, isn't that just the purpose of work, though? I mean, I feel like that's been so lost in our society. You know, it's kind of like progression for a job title's sake or for a wage rather than just a life well spent and looking back and saying I was constantly pushed and I, you know, developed as a person. And one of the things that I love about having, you know, you having such a clear goal where you were saying about how you wanted to take all of the fire hoses out out of landfill is The thing about a clear goal is that you can see when you've got there and then you have to kind of say, well, we've done that. So what do we do next? And it sounds like you've got a few other goals and you're likely to meet those too. What about, you know, a challenge? I mean, again, whenever I've kind of watched or listened to other people's interviews, it very much sticks on the positive. And I think for our community, it's always really interesting to hear about challenges as well that you've overcome. Anything that stands out for you that was really kind of a significant challenge?
1: Oh I mean there's there's so many and I Every day. This is, this is really important because the thing that an entrepreneur often does is gloss all that over. Exactly. Because in order to sell a new business and a new idea you you have to just talk about success and exactly. the lovely, yeah. the loveliness of it all. Yeah. But actually you're just a, a a duck that's manically paddling away under a, you know, a serene surface. And from day 1 I can just think of so many like, you know, we we couldn't afford to have photographers or website developers or anything like that. I mean, it was the advent of e-commerce. There was no net or anything like that. We downloaded this software program called Dreamweaver. Elvis learned to code. Yeah. We built our website ourselves. You know, neither of us have a background in that, but that was what we could afford. Elvis learned how to take photos because... You know, when, when I looked into lots of other websites, people were spending enormous amounts of money on graphic designers and photographers and website designers, and all before they'd ever made a sale, all before they'd ever validated their idea. And I knew we just didn't have the, the funds for that. So we did everything like that ourselves. We did all the fulfillment ourselves. We did all the, you know, for the first year just making belts, we made all the belts ourselves. Yeah. So we knew everything about the manufacture of our products, the packaging of our products, you know the how e-commerce worked, and because we kept up with that ridiculous level of self-reliance until pretty much 2013, when there was just no possible minute extra in the day where we could work any further, it just means we're really grounded in the business. But the amount of disasters we had between 2005 and 2013 were were huge. You know, we had American distributor one time run off with loads of stock and not pay we had uh, a factory that we were you know our first ever factory that we really pioneered things with in Romania Um, you know we they they were approached by uh, a big luxury brand who bought all its capacity and overnight we had no manufacturer
0: Um,
1: and that was in the you know the build-up to our pre-Christmas production window of of that year and if we had not sorted out that problem we would have died as a business because if you in those early years if we'd missed Christmas there there there, that was kind of where you mm-hmm. got 40 or 50 percent of your sales so so we i think within 10 days we'd set up another manufacturing facility our own manufacturing facility in istanbul i mean in 10 days it, and and we could have given up on, on so many occasions so many things could have killed us you know we started we did we made products for apple for a while and apple is um a terrible. Com- well, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, a, it's a terrible company. We've already you've already addressed in our sound check that I'm on an Android phone. And, and this is why it's because they asked us to design iPhone cases for them, which was, you know, a massive honor right when they were launching iPhone in the UK. So great, wonderful, amazing challenge. We did that. Um, but what they don't tell you in these great, lovely initial meetings is that you have to sell via a third party, a distributor. Mm-hmm. The The distributor takes a cut. Apple takes a cut to the tune of, you know, seven times markup they get, which is more than any retailer would take of mm-hmm. any brand. I mean, in, in, in luxury, some, yeah, sometimes it's four times, but never seven. Um, and they pay you nine months after they've sold the mm-hmm. goods. So it's like consignment on delay. And it got even worse than that. You know, when they launched iPhone 4, they do that, they do that with no warning whatsoever. So we had just made 3000 iPhone 3 cases, shipped them off. And then two days later, they just shipped them back to us saying, you know, no longer required. And, oh, my gosh,
0: that's crazy. That,
1: that could have killed our business. That, that one thing could crazy. have killed our business. That's the and worst it,
0: post you've ever got.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it was, a, it was an email. And, and the, the crazy thing, that the, the one reason that didn't kill our business was because the way we made our case, luckily enough, Although iPhone four was dramatically different from iPhone three, they were volumetrically the same. So iPhone four slid into the same case. So we got them all back, changed the sticker, and sent them out again. Wow! And then we and then we were ahead <laughs> production-wise. We were then the first iPhone four case on the market. So, I mean, yeah, you have these things, these moments where you think, is it worth it? Are is this ever going to get any easier? Or is it always going to be an uphill battle?
0: And the answer?
1: Well, clearly it is worth it because yeah. because otherwise you wouldn't continue. Yeah. But, but And this is also important. You know, this isn't my first startup. You know, this isn't my first business. I have been involved in businesses that, you know, ultimately failed. And I think the key thing is to you do have to be able to recognize when it isn't right.
0: Mm, that's such an interesting, I mean, because that's the thing that I, I haven't seen really linked up in your interviews to date so far around the kind of, there's often talk about you were in venture capital and you have startup experience. And I've kind of just taken that as read that you've had experience before, but I hadn't really thought of that as being, sometimes it is a good time to go actually. And, you know, and yeah. it's knowing that as well. I think that's a fascinating insight. Yeah, just on the Apple point, again, having worked in design, I've heard about those payment terms and not being able Mm -hmm. to talk about the work you've worked on. But you mentioned about this markup and um, Elvis and Cressy donate 50% of its profits to charity. And I once read somewhere, and I just love this line so much, and I was like, she's the perfect person to dig into this with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I once read that profit is the worst word in the human language. And I I wondered if you agreed with that.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, it's not a great word because it doesn't really give you any information so i've always found it a, a struggle when we get asked to say well how much profit did you make last year what was your revenue things like that and i'm like that's the, those are the least interesting things that we do and and they don't provide you with any detail whatsoever when a company announces oh we made 13 billion last year or this or that or the other, i just think well that's not telling me anything how much CO2 did you add to the atmosphere? Exactly, how many yeah. well-paid people work there? How many, you know, how many things did you supply humanity that were in- inherently valuable to the survival of our species? I remember reading an amazing article about uh, Walmart. This anthropologist had really just dug in and done interviews for years with people who worked at Walmart and looked at it, you know, as an anthropologist would look at a community but they were looking at the community of people who worked for walmart and what they found overwhelmingly was that people who worked there were reliant on state aid in in one form or another like food stamps or medicaid or you know rent reductions or what have you and to to then hear walmart talked about as a successful business is incredibly insulting and frustrating whenever you hear that they were profitable it's you know, it's just a lie because essentially it's been a state-sponsored enterprise. Wow. Yeah. So I can see that that profit in that sense is is a terrible word because it has no meaning. It's a figure on a page and money itself has no meaning. Mm. You you know, of course, you know, we sort of see money as WD-40. It's the grease in the wheels that allows you to do whatever you want to do as a business. But it's not why you should run a business. It's not what you should be seeking. I mean, I I remember going to a meeting. This is recently, like maybe three years ago, and someone kept saying, you know, talk about alpha and how we got to get alpha and alpha and alpha. And I was like, what do you, what, Jen? Like, really, what do you mean by that? And I was like, well, money. We got to make. We got to make money. We got to make profit. I was like, no, but seriously, like am I in some 1980s time warp? Are people <laughs> calling it alpha? <laughs> I, was oh like, God. I was like, I, was, I really thought I was being punked. <laughs> it seems so old fashioned and, oh God. and like something I thought was no longer relevant thinking. And yet, you know, this was in basically a boardroom of a, mm. an enormous company. And I, I don't know what to, to do with the idea that we should celebrate profits. I think it's I just don't understand why that's worth celebrating when when you have offered no explanation to how you achieved it and and actually on, on whose back it was achieved or on which environmental resource it was achieved. Mm.
0: And I mean, when that whole concept of giving 50% of your profits away to charity, if we kind of stay with that word, it feels like, and again, this is something that I really sense a lot with the warrior women, we talk a lot about how to scale a business in a way that's healthy and sustainable for you personally and a key part of that being having your own definition for success. And what's coming out a lot in our conversations is around what's enough. Like actually, you know, success can just be a horrible thing to chase if you haven't defined like what's enough. Um, Is that a conversation that you and your long walks that you and Elvis ever have? Oh,
1: loads. I mean, we had enough before we were born. I think that the the way that I often talk about it is in the sense of um, guilt. You know, I was born into an amazing, loving family in Canada. You know, in the late '70s, the education system there is is amazing. But in particular, the '80s, they just were throwing money at it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I had never anything but support for whatever hairbrained idea that I had from from my family, uh, whatever I wanted to to learn or to study. Everybody wanted to make sure that we got a chance to do that. I never experienced sexism. You know, there's, I, and and I get how almost rare that is, but I just haven't experienced it. I've never had anyone put a glass ceiling above me or, you know, make me feel like as a female, I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. I have a Canadian passport, which is, means that I can basically travel anywhere in the world. And, and not ever be thought of as suspicious or, you know, I mean, how insane is that? That's just Mm.
0: ridiculous. I could have like a whole panel and interview people on this question, because it's such a big one. Um, And I think there's a huge psychological aspect to people who are running large corporations who, you know, they kind of want to throw that figure around at dinner parties and say, how much profit did you make last year? Uh, I've got a really odd question for you, um, which I, I hope you'll be okay to answer. But I know, You know, you are in the fashion industry, the luxury industry right now with what you're doing. And I've, you know, heard you talk about the industry and how it needs to change. So I thought I'd frame that a different way and ask you this question Imagine a kind of a surprising turn of events. Let's say you accept the job as CEO of ASOS. What would you change? Everything. I would put
1: a limit on how many items customers were able to purchase per year. I would re-examine the entire supply chain back to front and make sure there wasn't a single person in it not earning a living wage. And I mean to the cotton farmer and Mm -hmm. the weaver and the spinner and the cutter. I would look at all the materials that we were using, how they were processed, how they were dyed, how they were packaged, and I would eliminate all the environmental impacts from that. And I would give 50% of the profits to uh, causes or a fund that helps to rebuild the industry in a way that's fit for the future. So we know that we consume too much. We know that, that that's got to stop. But we also know that the fashion industry is, is, is creates a lot of employment worldwide. Employment is good, but we need to make sure that those are good jobs that are well-paid and that those people are well-respected. So probably the the charitable partnership would be about, you know, retraining people to, so that they could pursue other things where it wasn't a consumption led economy. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be, it would be an incredible adventure to take on a role like that because there is so much change that is required, but it would also be incredibly difficult. You know, lots of these companies have shareholders. So maybe, maybe actually the first thing I would do would be to get shareholder agreement that I didn't have to do quarterly reporting or even annual reporting. Mm -hmm. I'd have to get by in that they were behind the direction the business was going to go in. And it's not like this is impossible. You know, there are companies that are able to convince their shareholders to come along on these broader journeys. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to see the big energy companies completely transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. We're going to see that happen in in probably 10 to 20-year timeframes. Mm. And their shareholders will either stay on board with that or the companies will shut down. So, uh, yeah, it would be an amazing adventure. I'm not sure I would say <laughs> yes to it. I would probably say yes to it if certain conditions could be met. Mm.
0: I feel like it would be more you as a consultant, you know, like working alongside, but it's what's really... Oh, no, I definitely
1: wouldn't do it as a consultant. Oh, really? I'd have to do it as an absolute dictator because if you were a consultant, then you have to... Oh, my goodness, I've tried this before. Basically, the views that you have then have to go through 88 layers of bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and the innovation may or may not happen. You know, you'd have to be very much in charge with a very long runway buy-in from the shareholders and, you know, a promise that people wouldn't interfere for at least, you know, until you'd managed to get a lot of your agenda underway.
0: I'm wondering if somebody might listen to this and kind of make that call because so often actually the main role of a CEO is to hold that vision, you know, to move past kind of managing and into leadership and just saying, what is the vision for the future and how tightly can I hold it? As you say, like almost like a a dictator Mm. and, I mean, there must be so many people in this business. I think it's really easy to criticise them to some extent. And obviously, we absolutely should. But it's I think when you look at companies like Danone that have just become a B Corp, there are people within these organisations that are waking up and saying, right, you know, we've really got to do something here. And listening to you now, you hear there is so much to do. But if you don't do it, then ultimately you know, obviously worst case scenario which is already where we are you're ruining the place where you live and where your children's children if we're lucky will live um and best case scenario you kind of wake up and say i've did something that i really regretted with my life and the company failed anyway so i think it's a decision that people are going to have to come to one way or another um, one kind of final question again. So, I want first of all, I wanted to dig into you with that profit question. There was a, another thing that you said, and it's something that I feel really strongly passionate about. So, with the Warrior Women community, one of the things we're trying to do is create a kind of radically collaborative and caring workplace. And you talked about in an interview that every problem in the world has resulted from a failure to collaborate so i'd love you to just dig into that a bit more and say where that was coming from
1: so the the amazing thing that i've learned since being in the uk is that there is an expert in this country on pretty much everything <laughs> and and that is an unbelievably untapped resource. You know, when I look at a new material that Elvis and I can take on, you start Googling it, you start looking at scholarly articles that have been written about it, you start, if you see the same professor's name pop up a couple of times, I then go on to his, you know, page at his university, and there'll be an office number there, give him a call, give her a call, say, hey, do you have 10 minutes? Like, I'd love to talk about the practical applications of this. And you find that you'll, that the, the response is, are you kidding me? You've read that you want to you want to try that um you know we're we 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 have the solutions we need to solve the problems we're facing and we don't use them because we aren't as open as we should be to working with people outside of our own silos Mm. you know the the fashion sector loves to is loves to promote from within it's notoriously hierarchical they rarely you know bring in at like the ultimately senior positions people who are completely outside of, of that structure and i think that's a problem because you don't then get the learning from other industries you know we need artists working with chemists we need architects working with farmers we need politicians working with humanitarians um we need politicians certainly working with ethicists about how to tell the truth and how to be held accountable for your actions. There's so many things that we need to do and we have all of that within our collective human intelligence. Mm-hmm. And and yet we're we're not doing it. And and also we have it within within our hearts. You know, we in in general, people are built to to be community oriented and to build relationships. And yet we don't often focus on those things in our working lives. We don't focus on how we could make everyone's life better. We don't focus on how what we're doing in one country might negatively impact people in a completely different geography, or you know what might happen downstream of a particular river and we have all of the solutions to solve all of these problems and I just think we have to start being radically transparent and willing to work with people in a much broader sense and and this is where also the idea of profit maybe comes into conflict with that idea because companies often want to protect their IP protect their ideas you know even in fashion you've got all this secrecy around next year's collection well it's a lot of bullshit really because what is it going to be bell bottoms again or tartan again or something from 16 years ago that we all forgot about fluorescence or lace gloves or you know it's not like it's not like people are inventing entirely new kinds of clothing that liberate us Mm. from resource use so I just I just think we need to think less competitively and more collaboratively and we need to take advantage of the skills that exist and the brains trust that we have, trust experts, because some of them are amazing um, and get on with it. You know, even in let's say in the, in the fashion space, there's a there's a union of concerned researchers in fashion. Mm. And a couple of years ago when, you know, at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, which is supposed to be all about sustainable fashion They released this review saying, you know, we've seen an increase in talk about sustainable fashion in the last ten years. We've seen lots of amazing initiatives launched. I
0: remember this. Yeah,
1: yeah, but the scale of growth in the industry is outstripping any benefit we've made by such a wide margin that there's that there's the the benefit and the gain is meaningless. And and I'm kind of you know looking at that, going, why are we so good at celebrating mediocrity when we could have? um you know a much more inclusive diverse industry that didn't hurt anyone and didn't
0: mm-hmm. hurt anything two thoughts on that when when one when you were saying about Going out to academics and literally picking up the phones with them and saying you've loved their research and then being surprised. There's a, a woman in the community who goes by the name of Creative Scientist, and she is a rare breed in that she is a designer, but she's also worked very much in kind of human sciences and um, masters and this that and everything. And a lot of her work is just literally going and finding far out academic research on things like how to solve climate change, and then finding ways to. Um, implement them into into work for example she worked with Mr. Lion on designing kind of a cocktail where you could trace absolutely every ingredient Um, so that as I'm listening to you talking makes me think the relationship between you and Elvis is interesting from that design research point of view and going out and connecting to these other worlds and translating them into you know new ways to solve problems is, is a really growing and interesting field One project where it sounds absolutely fascinating, it sounds like you're really applying that that thinking around collaboration. I heard that you're working on, um, is it a technology or you want to donate a technology to the world? What's that? What's that all about? Sounds (laughs) amazing.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually in, in progress, like really, really in progress right now. So we always wanted to make our own hardware. So belt buckles and D rings and things like that. And, You know if we're going to do that in an Elvis and Cressy way it has to be made of a rescued material and 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 it has to be made using renewable energy and then I started looking for okay there's probably a 3d metal printer where I can chuck an aluminium can in one end and get a belt buckle out the other end and it turned out that there wasn't I called all these professors they all told me that kind of technology was 10 years away and even then the machine would be 300,000 pounds i.e unaffordable to foster a recycling revolution. The reason why I've focused on aluminium is because in the UK every year we have 16 million cans that are littered into our public spaces. We have a government that's failed time and time again to reintroduce a deposit system. 16
0: million, really? Wow.
1: And 16 million is the tip of the iceberg because 20% of our overall cans, which is 2 billion cans, don't get put in the right bins so they don't get recycled because we're too uh, culturally far away from the idea of cherishing this as a noble metal that we're unwilling to hold on to a can until we get to a recycling bin. We'll just put it in with general waste. I mean, it's it's so devastating that this is, was my idea. We have to make a renewably powered microforge because the 3D printers are too far away. And then I started looking around for academics who could help me with that. And then rather amazingly, we got a grant to cover our academic support for a year. So the grant has gone entirely to a team at Queen Mary university who have built me a renewably powered forge. Now then the giving the technology away thing was always a part of it from the beginning was that, you know, if we're going to invent this new machine uh, and it's going to be cheap and it's going to be something that can be rolled out all around the world, then why would I want to own it? You know, I'm not trying to, Like set up a forge making business (laughs) i'm trying to foster a circular economy and and a renewable energy revolution and a remanufacturing revolution and i want that revolution to be at the hands of the communities around the world that are impacted by waste and so you know the people who gave us the grant said you know one of the reasons we gave it to you is because you you guys want to use public funds for
0: public good, not wow. for private not for private profit. And Gosh, I was like,
1: yes, exactly. That That's what public such,
0: funds are for. That is <laughs> such an interesting line, isn't it? And I'm just thinking about how many cans must, you know, must people drink in like India, for example? Like it must be what, It's the, everywhere. T- I mean yeah and it, and it's starting these revolutions from materials which is just fascinating yeah. well congrats on that so are you you've got the grant and it's going ahead when do you think that will complete
1: we have a prototype forge that's that's working mm-hmm. um so that's i mean it's working it it takes power from the sun and it melts cans down and we can make buckles out of it that's great um, and I guess the first step for us is that we're also collaborating with a scaling for impact program that's linked us to entrepreneurs in South Africa, who are looking at adapting the forge to the needs of South Africa, i.e., the waste that's on the ground there, the needs of waste pickers and the informal economy around that, and also to what equipment may or may not be available. Like the shopping list we have and how we've built the forge in the UK will be different in South Africa just due to what's available, and also due to how much sun they have i.e. lots more <laughs> so, so i think the, this crazy idea that i had uh, may may just turn out to be one of our biggest legacies because we have no control over it we don't desire control over it we want it to escape we want people to learn from it and iterate on it and build their own equipment
0: And what is like the dream again on your your walk with, with Elvis, if you're happy to share it, like what is your dream scenario that that, you know, what that might be used for, what problem that could solve?
1: Well, essentially what this machine does is it turns energy from the sun into concentrated heat up to 660 degrees C, which allows you to melt aluminium. Now, just imagine how many processes around the world require heat. And right now we're using fossil fuels for that. This technology, if it well and truly escapes, could be used to for anaerobic digestion, for sewage treatment, for food production, for heating community housing where there's fuel poverty. I I just the, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And it started because I was really ticked off that people were driving by the mill throwing cans out the window.
0: So the next time you're working on one of your products and you say, oh, this this bit here is really annoying me. You never know. <laughs> you might be onto another another world, world-saving invention. Yeah. What advice would you, would you give to companies wanting to take a real look at their, their waste problem?
1: Where should they start? You have to start with actually getting to grips with what you produce. So there's a couple of companies that I've interacted with recently, Sky being one of them where I just thought, wow, wow. You know, they've got down to every inch of cable, a list of the waste associated with their business. They care about it. They measure it. They want to change that situation. But they couldn't do any of that if they hadn't just focused on getting the data and the information together. Where is the waste? How much is there? What does it look like? Uh, so that, that's the first thing you've got to do is that level of research. And then you, you branch out into the next level, which is the most fun level, which is kind of where we were back at the British library, you know, where we had nitrile rubber hose and we were like, right, who uses nitrile rubber? What do they use it for? What's its melting point? What's its freezing point? At what point does it crack when it's exposed to UV? You know, then you learn all the properties associated with these materials. And then you look at what kind of markets those materials are in. And for us, I look at, you know, what market will help me achieve the the most extreme level of value, and I, we focus on extreme value creation because we want to be able to give lots of money away. You know, mm-hmm. The first bit is boring because it's data collection. But, but as soon as you've got that data, then it's just fun after
0: that. I wonder if extreme value creation is like a better way of talking about, you know, a new way of thinking about profit. And just there's something in that for sure. Yeah. I, Are there any women, you know, addressing the landfill issue that we should also follow and support? You know, I know you're very collaborative. Anyone else that you'd like to kind of cite that you should say support this person?
1: There's all kinds of people. You know, there's young activists like Lily that we follow on Instagram from her handle is Lily's Plastic Pickup. And she she just walks home every day collecting all the rubbish that she sees. And then she lays it out, takes photos of it. And it's really... It's really profound because she's just saying, "Here it is. I'm taking care of it. It's pretty appalling, but have a look." Um, and then you've got you've got e- everything from there up to you know people who are running uh, you know some of the world's biggest waste waste companies and who are transforming them into resource companies. So I think we're finding that there is a lot of incredible people who are looking at what what was once waste and and actually is now a resource. And they know that in their heads. And they're part of the, the, I suppose, the vanguard of this revolution. And everyone else will come along sooner rather than later. But yeah, there's a lot of people who have been doing that for years and years and years. I mean, just think back to our grandmothers who used to keep every single scrap of textile and sew Mm. two inch squares into quilts Mm. I mean that's 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 love and dedication Mm. and and we don't need any more inspiration than that
0: Mm. I mean maybe there's something in that as a final kind of note I'm thinking of my grandmother making you know yogurts with those glass glasses with the White lids on them. Maybe we need to look back to our own childhoods, going to dumps, and how we used to live, it, and to start thinking if maybe there's some inspiration there for our own lives. Thank mm. you so so much for your for your time today. And um, it sounds like we've got a whole lot more to expect from Elvis and Cressy I know that I have definitely fallen into the trap of I'm turning 40 in December and saying, you know what, I needed one of these bags in my life. So <laughs> thank you so so much for your time, and um, we'll we'll follow you with great interest. Thank you. Thank you. I
1: really enjoyed
0: it. I'm Carla Morales-Lee, and you've been listening to the Warrior Women podcast, which is produced by the amazing women at Birdline Media. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please click to subscribe, because in our next episode, I'll be talking to Paula Harriet, who is Head of Prisoner Engagement at the Prison Reform Trust. Her passion for working with excluded members of the community stems from her personal experience as a female prisoner. This is our first series, so if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate you rating, reviewing, subscribing and sharing it. The Warrior Women Network is a global network of pioneering intersectional women. The best companies in the world are transforming the way they work to be better for people and planet. We offer ways for organisations to learn how to be a force for change from the women already leading it. If you'd like to know more, go to warriorwomennetwork.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening.